Actually, guys, can you give me one minute? Can I take that call? Yeah, sure. absolutely. Mike and I are ready to do this podcast with Gerald, and he walks away. Too big, too important for talking to Mike and I. I get it. It's good to be the Gerald, I guess. But All right, sorry about that. No problem. Welcome back to another episode of Squat Cobbler. Before we even get started, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're choosing to take this in as. I am Dr. Mike at Official Pagan on Everything, and joining me as always... Hi everybody, this is Lil Kelly Tool at K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-O-L on Twitter and Instagram. Lil Kelly Tool? I don't know, just felt like breaking it up. You got Dr. Mike, I'm trying stuff out. Okay, I, I get it, okay. So Kelly the SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so we are back with a Prisoner Exchange album this week. And this week, I thought we would tackle something by Marilyn Manson. Are you familiar at all with this band, Kelly? Familiar by name, familiar by reputation, have really uh, never listened to any of their stuff at all. Okay. At all. (laughs) So to give you a quick little background for anybody who's not familiar, much like Alice Cooper, the Alice Cooper group, there was the band, the Alice Cooper group who broke up and then Alice Cooper took on the name. Similar situation with Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson started off as a band called Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids. They had some independent releases, then a couple of major label albums, and then the band broke up. They did along the way shorten their name from Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids to just Marilyn Manson. The band broke up and the singer, Brian Warner, continued on as a solo artist using the name Marilyn Manson, similar to Alice Cooper. So how long ago did they break up? So the band broke up in the 90s, late 90s, when they first started to have a great deal of commercial success. After this album, there was a companion piece to this particular record. This was their first major label album. There was some independent releases. This was their first major label album. There was a companion piece released to this, which was their big mainstream break. Then the follow-up album is when the core band started to fall apart. And then after, I believe, maybe one more record after that with a few stragglers from the original band and then from that point forward it was just mr warner as the marilyn manson moniker was it creative differences did the remainder of the band go off and do something else or did they just uh kind of all went their separate ways and i'll get into that a little bit actually as we get into this so i am familiar with marilyn manson from their pre-album days so i as a kid would get these music zines delivered to my parents house and there was a couple articles in there about this band marilyn manson So I got interested in them. I tracked down some of these self-released recordings. And then I got to spend a summer on the West Coast. When the band happened to be touring on the West Coast, the person who was supposed to be watching me (laughs) decided to leave me with somebody who was related to somebody in the band to take me to a show. And I got to spend a bunch of time with the band as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old. 
something like that on the road with a band, which is pretty cool. Um, got to hang out in on the West Coast as an 11 or 12 year old with the band Marilyn Manson, just as they were really starting to make a name for themselves. I want to say over the course of like that next year after that is when they really hit the mainstream as the band. And then the band started to dissolve shortly after that. But it was pretty cool because I got to come back to school and tell everybody what I did on my summer vacation that year prior to us using that as a title for a video. Um, <laughs> I got to tell everybody what I did. And then for Christmas that year, I got a present from Marilyn Manson, the band shipped to my house, <laughs> which is probably not what was happening with a lot of kids around that time. But more so than any other band directly, this is probably why I'm a musician because of my association with them as a young kid. And I actually stayed friends with the founding guitar player, Scott, who unfortunately passed away not long ago. Uh, after a battle with cancer. So I wanted to talk about one of their albums and also brag about something that I got recently <laughs> that is related to them. So I figured we would start with their first proper commercial major label record. So for anybody who doesn't know the backstory of the band, they are from Florida. They were started by Brian Warner and Scott Pateski. They had some indie releases and then they solidified a lineup of the band, a core lineup, and they recorded this album and the record company didn't like it. So they went back and re-recorded the entire album with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails producing this time. So Trent Reznor kind of gave them their their break somewhat. They had a little bit of a following in the South and along the East Coast. And then Brian Warner was working as a music journalist and he got in with Nine Inch Nails a little bit, got some shows opening for them. And then Trent Reznor decided to sign them through an imprint that he had just started with Interscope Records to release this album. Well, what became this album? Because they recorded it twice. If you were interested, anybody who's listening, in the original version of the album, that somehow mysteriously made its way online a couple years ago. So you can find it, the, the long lost original version. But we are here to talk about the, the proper release of it. And I feel like we should start with the artwork. What were your thoughts on that, sir? Um... So kind of, kind of what I expected a Marilyn Manson cover to look like, I guess. It just, there's a lot going on. I kind of almost want to draw a parallel to um, uh, Hey Stupid, to where it's, okay. one of, it's one of those ones where it's like, wow, there's like a lot here. Some editing may be nice. So, so it was, um, it was okay. I kind of probably had the same concerns I did with the Hey Stupid cover, which is that it was just like too much. I can totally see that. And uh, the album cover of a lot of the artwork associated with this was done by Mr. Warner himself, who at the time was doing all their concert flyer artwork and the artwork for their indie records. Those independent releases, many of the songs off of here are actually re-recordings of songs from those earlier releases. So if you were a fan of the band prior to them getting any sort of mainstream recognition, you're familiar with a lot of the material that's on here. It's just been refined and polished a great deal compared to those earlier versions. And let's jump right into it. It opens with the introduction prelude, The Family Trip. This is a... So in the early days of the band, they incorporated a lot of visual elements from kids' movies as a way to sort of juxtapose their initially very politically leaning, more punk rock attitude that you do get throughout this record, and we'll touch on a little bit, which was replaced with more of a, I want to say general shock rock and more of the Alice Cooper vein after that, but more specifically political on this first record, and they, like I said, juxtapose that with references to family movies and particularly kids movies. In this case, Willy Wonka. This is a monologue from the Willy Wonka movie. Yeah. So the Willy Wonka 
immediate appearance of Willy Wonka <laughs> lines from the movie in a Marilyn Manson album was a bit of a surprise to me. The the playlist you shared with me, we go a little bit deeper. We we actually return back to the boat ride scene that this comes from uh, and is featured heavily in a, a video supporting one of the future songs. So I wasn't really sure in the Willy Wonka movie. There were a couple times when Gene Wilder was particularly creepy in that movie. This particular section when he gives this this particular speech uh, is probably the worst or the most creepy he is in the whole thing. And I really didn't think it could get more unpleasant, but they did an excellent job <laughs> in making it even <laughs> even more unpleasant. It's And it is almost Alice-y-like delivery. It's a very Cooper-esque like delivery. So if Alice was doing the Willy Wonka speech in the boat or the rhyme in the boat, it'd be very similar like that. So I thought it was pretty intriguing, a very kind of clever little piece, and it definitely got my attention. Very nice. Well, that brings us to the proper first song of the album, Cake and Sodomy. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have, before we even talk about the song, was there an initial reaction maybe that you had to the title? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't figure that this was going to be making my top playlist going into it. So is this, before, all right, top line reaction then, was it was this the album where you were like, pass? Actually, by the time I'm done, no. It's not a, oh, give me more, please, right away <laughs> either. But early on, I was like, hmm, I don't know. Particularly the, the Wonka stuff, I was cool. They go, this song, we'll talk about it. I warmed to it as we went a little bit further through, and I kind of bet, went back and reflected on some of the other songs. At the end of it, I didn't dislike that this. There are some, there are some songs like this one that i found musically pretty solid lyrically i can pretty much live without this one it's a very catchy it's a very catchy chorus it's a chorus i'll never be repeating as i walk into wherever i'm going at any point in time but musically i thought it was it was cool it was driving i'm not a particularly strong fan of the lyrical content of this song i can see that and this so I'm I'm a big fan of this song in general. One of my favorites of their earlier material, particularly musically. I love Scott's guitar riff on this. One of the things, though, about this early incarnation of the band, it's definitely more punk influenced. And that includes the sort of the political-ish element that punk had in more of a generalized, like, anti-establishment way, not in a political party leaning kind of way but this song in particular does sort of focus on mocking the the southern bible belt area yeah mocking might be a little gentle <laughs> in terms of <laughs> some some light ribbing <laughs> yeah I, perhaps perhaps stronger <laughs> just gentle <laughs> gentle banter <laughs> peaceful discourse with the american south yeah i'm sure he's really popular down there well he's from florida he should be right yeah see they're southern it's okay i'm sure nobody was offended no not at all ironically though this early record mostly at the time flew under the radar it did get them a much much wider fan base but this is not why people know who they are the controversy comes much later and what's interesting is this record is by far their most shocking in terms of the material on there but it's not until later that they kind of become infamous and at that time their records are compared to this extremely sanitized with, with almost nothing that anybody could could realistically find objectionable on there maybe some mild profanity so th this is ironically the record that people would would probably object to things on yeah and, uh, and on this song in particular they get they get right to it <laughs> you know pretty much out of the gate what was that line um <laughs> 
uh, I, I can't recall at this point, but it was like right, it was right away. It was like uh, there's a Kiss song called "God of Thunder," and I think it was, <laughs> I think it was in that milieu, <laughs> but I can't, I just can't extemporaneously recall what it was. That particular line that Kelly can't recall, I won't say for his own editing <laughs> sanity, but it was plastered on a lot of their early T-shirts. My parents loved that I had that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> It's a conversation starter with the high school principal and everyone else, I'm sure. I wasn't even in high school. That's right. You'd be like elementary. (laughs) This is grade school. This was actually, I want to say it was the, maybe the summer, either right before or right after eighth grade, somewhere right around there. It could, it could have been cakes and shotguns and it would have been fine. (laughs) He could have been the God of shotguns, you know, but no. (laughs) You feel like it would have gotten the same message message across? I, I think he that gentle ribbing you were talking about, he could have accomplished. He went a different path. <laughs> All right, so moving right along, one of their more popular early songs, this had appeared on their independent releases. One of my favorites, pro- I want to say this was my introduction to the band, actually. And it was probably their first like proper music video released. I know that it was released as a single off of this. And I love this song. I love the riff in the song unfortunately i feel like the message hasn't aged well this is another political fight the man kind of song that i think would be lost on most people (laughs) these days it was too topical which is one of the issues that i take with sort of topical political themes and records they don't necessarily age well and this is one of those songs i love the song still but i feel like most people would be hard pressed unless you were really familiar with this very specific issue at the time to tell you what this song was about (laughs) so were you familiar kelly did this immediately jump out at you is what this was as far as a particular topic uh no i i got a after i overcame my initial pleasant surprise of a six-year-old dropping the f-bomb to start the song off (laughs) after i cleared that i felt there was a bullying element to it but i didn't know there was a topical reference there is so at this time so i don't know if you remember kelly but prior to the point when this song was recorded and that little kid dropping the f-bomb was on the original version as well so they had to bring that kid back out (laughs) to re-record it for the proper album so (laughs) this song around the time that it came out if you remember lunch boxes and schools used to be made of metal yep (laughs) and then there was a point where they switched over to plastic that was actually because of a federal law that declared lunchboxes weapons in the early 90s. I totally missed that. Yeah, it was a big, big... I remember like being a kid in school and like they had to inspect our lunchboxes. They sent people home <laughs> for having metal lunchboxes. And it was a big, big deal if you were a kid in school in the early 90s. So it's something that hasn't... And that's what the, the F-bomb reference of the person will get his medal in the beginning. It's mocking sort of the federal government that millions and millions of tax dollars were spent having hearings to determine whether a child's lunchbox is a deadly weapon that kids are carrying in school that they will use to murder each other. And it was decided that they are in fact deadly weapons and they stopped making metal lunchboxes for a long time. So that's why when you see the metal or tin lunchboxes now, they are marked as collectibles because you are not allowed to market a metal lunchbox. I was a paper bag guy, <laughs> so I, I missed the whole lunchbox controversy. Hit the lunchbox. See, and that's, I love this song. I really do. But when you make things that are so specifically topical like that, as a kid, I was like, oh, that's cool. They're singing about this thing that's actually affecting me. As an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. <laughs> and unless you were in school at that exact time, you're probably mostly unaware of it. 
But got to throw down at the playground. Pretty pretty good line. Got to like that. Well, I do think the lyrics are clever, juxtaposing the idea of like little kids on the playground as warring gang factions. I thought that was pretty funny. The first incarnation of this album that they ended up having to re-record, there's a lot of material on it that's better on that version. This is not one of those times. Um, this song was greatly, greatly improved by the re-recording, particularly in Mr. Warner's delivery. And I assume at the behest of Trent Reznor, who had taken over the reins of the recording, he completely changed his delivery to more of a shouted sort of punk style. It was more of a mock faux rapping in the original version, and it it just didn't work. This is a dramatically improved version of the song. It's a song I, I really enjoy. I know it's a staple of their live shows even to this day. It's a popular song. I really enjoy it. But again, the reference probably didn't age that well. And that brings us to Organ Grinder. <laughs> so Organ Grinder is a song that I like, but it's honestly greatly improved. As I mentioned earlier, there is a companion piece to this album, which actually outsold this album, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. So later on this album, as Kelly alluded to, there was a song called Dope Hat. Dope Hat became a somewhat popular music video. That's what really started to get the band attention. So they wanted to rush out a remix to Dope Hat to get something on the radio and get get a new product out. So they were going to release a, a single with some remixes. And then it sort of evolved into an EP and then a sort of short companion album to this. And that album was called Smells Like Children. And it is reworked versions of a few of the songs from this record. Instead of just doing a remix, they completely deconstructed the songs and recorded new, very different versions of them. The version of this of this song on that is actually superior to this one, in my opinion. But ironically, that album ended up becoming their breakout, even though most people didn't know they were sort of one behind at that point. And really, you needed to listen to this one first because it included a cover of the rhythmic song Sweet Dreams, which ended up becoming their first like radio hit song. And recently, <laughs> I have been lucky enough to acquire from the director of the Sweet Dreams music video some of the actual animation cells that they use. So the way that they, they produced that video was taking a bunch of stills and then animating the stills because this was pre-CGI and filters on your phones where you can do things like this to, <laughs> to give it sort of a distorted, jerky look to all of their movements. And the director was very kind in order to provide me with some of the actual stills that they used to do the animation for the video. So those are in our studio now. So I'll have to include a, a photo for you to add on to the blog post for that. But I do like this song. It's a little bit heavier than what's come before it at this point, but the version on Smells Like Children is better. This was actually my favorite song so far. It's got a nice kind of hook to it. The music's driving. So I do like it. I do like it quite a bit. I was a bit conflicted because, and this is a bit of a tangent and I apologize, but the, are you familiar, Mike, with the band Toad to Boner and the Bingo Brothers? Yes, I have heard of that band. Yeah, highly influential, you know, the, the Stones are influenced by him, the Who, Pagan, also heavily influenced by Toto Boner and the Bingo Brothers. A lot of folks don't know that Organ Grinder was the final song written for the original Toto Boner and the Bingo Brothers album, uh, Toto Boner and the Bingo Brothers group which was three-fifths Ukrainian, I'd like to point out. But we never got around to recording it. And so I thought maybe Marilyn was ripping me off here, but he wasn't. <laughs> and so it's an entirely different theme on Organ Grinder. So that threw me a little bit, but even I was able to step away from that. It's a good song. And I really did, like I said, my favorite so far, a really good driving song. Kind of, you know, as you would expect, you get a little bit of the Organ Grinder-esque musical interlude at the beginning before it slams into the song with great earnest, but a good song. Excellent. So that brings us to Cyclops. The ballad, I would say. 
of the album power ballad esque. Would you agree with that, sir? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll go with that. If there were a power ballad on this album, it's this song. <laughs> yeah, especially as you kind of towards the last third, it becomes power ballad esque. This was one of my favorite songs, I think, when I was younger. And then as I've gotten older, it's it's probably slid down the list for me. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably align with your older self <laughs> in that in terms of everything I've heard so far, it wasn't kind of reaching to the tops for me. I think any song about Cyclops where you do inter introduce dilate <laughs> as a major lyrical construct is pretty clever so that's good good you know points to them for that but uh an okay thing in the shift towards the end and tempo was interesting but just in terms of the some of the power and and stuff that i'd heard before it wasn't top one for me i totally understand that and agree with it now <laughs> We're getting to Dope Hat. Dope Hat was one of the more popular songs off this record, as I mentioned, and spawned what became the companion piece to this, Smells Like Children, which was their breakout. Dope Hat was interesting because I remember hearing about the band through, like reading about them through zines, getting my hands on some of their music, meeting the band. I, You could always gauge when I was a kid how popular a band was getting by how prolific their t-shirts would appear on things and particularly when you went to like touristy spots like if you went to one of the short towns on the east coast or anything like that i remember one year going and seeing like two or three other people with marilyn manson t-shirts out of the thousand people that i walked past in a day or two then the next summer like when dope hat had kind of started playing i remember seeing it on mtv a couple of times and then seeing it a bunch of times on mtv's at the time biggest competitor the box all of a sudden there was a lot there was a noticeable shift of a lot more kids with Marilyn Manson t-shirts on after this and as Kelly mentioned this goes further into the Willy Wonka territory with it it's probably my favorite song after Cake Inside of Me on this record what did you think of this one sir I liked it quite a bit uh, lyrically another really kind of strong outing or the uh, fail to see the anguish in my eyes just really good we get some of the tragic turning to magic uh, towards the end which is another kind of very clever turn of phrase which is really good so I liked the song a lot the video yeah I'm not as big a fan of to be honest with you Oompa Loompa's possibly getting busy is not my thing outside of that but it was it was a different take on the Willy Wonka experience that it is and I think it's also worth noting this is sonically closer to what's coming after this in later records whereas i think the rest of this album has definitely a more noticeable punk rock sort of sound you get a little bit more of the, the sort of arena rock and industrial elements that come through much stronger on later efforts so that brings us to the most overtly political song on the entire album get your gun with two ends now what did you think when you saw this title sir i was confused because <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, Peter Gunn? I didn't really... The title threw me with the extra N outside of artistic selection. You know, exclusively on the title, I really didn't know what I was going to be getting into, but I had a feeling it might not stay apolitical. I don't know if you did any research into it. Nope. So <laughs> the title... <laughs> And again, this is this is one of those things that at the time, I think a lot of people would have recognized. But now that a lot of time has passed, it, it is a very specific reference that probably would elude many, many people. The general, once again, you know, anti-establishment feel of the song comes through, but it is specifically referencing uh, there was a Dr. Gunn who was killed by pro-life protesters who murdered him to prove how much they valued life. <laughs> so which you know seems somewhat contradictory the song is specifically referencing that he was a doctor who 
I think he'd done some work with Planned Parenthood. So he was getting some protests. He was, I guess, a successful doctor, not like a local PCP or anything like that. I remember this being on the news and he was killed by some protesters. And, you know, in interviews with them on the news, they were doing it to show everybody how much they supported life by killing people. So that's what the song is specifically referencing. Again, the most overtly political song. But again, I would say, and this is why, and I've said this before with numerous bands. And again, this is with a band that I really enjoy. So on an album, I really enjoy, I couldn't say I like all of their material, but on an album that I really enjoy being overtly political, and this is why I veer away from it. In addition to potentially alienating people, it dates you. Not in the way that being, you know, anti-establishment might date you, because that's something that I think multiple generations can can appreciate and can span time. This is something that's referencing a very specific event. And while Google is a thing, I think that nowadays most people would probably see two ends as an artistic choice and probably not do a lot of research into the backstory. Similar to Cake and Sodomy and its sort of general anti-establishment view. I mean, not a lot to add. I think definitely a driving song, clearly anti-establishment, the the commentary about pseudo pseudo morals kind of fits with the situation that they're calling back to a little bit, which you know is a fair point, but it it is one of those things that gets a little risky on how quickly it dates itself out depending on how topical it gets. But it's a good it's a good driving song. I liked it. All right, sir. That brings us to Wrapped in Plastic. I always liked this song, but I liked it in part too because are you a Twin Peaks guy at all, Kelly? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, so this song references the show Twin Peaks. Much like Nine Inch Nails, the band Marilyn Manson was very influenced by the work of filmmaker David Lynch. Trent Reznor has contributed a lot to to some David Lynch projects. Mr. Warner and another member of the band actually appeared in one of his films and contributed songs to his films as well. But that all kind of started here. Uh, the title is a reference to the first episode of Twin Peaks, a famous line from that. And there are some references to it in the lyrics as well. So the bass line, the early, early bass in this is really cool. I like that quite a bit. I think probably missing all the Twin Peaks references didn't help me out a lot on this song because it didn't stand out to me versus some other things as much i think had i had that connection a little bit more would have been been a little richer deeper for me but it was good it's a good solid song i said i really did like the bass very nice i like the bass on this song as well fun fact for everybody so longtime bassist twiggy ramirez is pictured with the band on this album but does not actually play bass on this record he replaced the bassist that recorded everything on this record and came in just as they were doing the photo shoots and things like that so he's not actually on this album and that brings us to dogma folky sort of with a country western vibe completely the antithesis of everything we've seen up until this point uh, i would say soothing so i'd go with you kind of on country but it's power country <laughs> it is <laughs> power hillbilly whatever you want to call it from the power, i like that Power Hillbilly. Power that's, Hillbilly. A, that's a band name. There you go. <laughs> Power Hillbilly a little bit. Uh, the drums in this are particularly cool. Fun to, fun to listen to on that. Yeah, I'd go with you. It's fun. It's definitely a change of pace. Dogma's the, the title, and as you might expect, kind of thematically runs through the lyrics quite a bit. Yeah, I thought it was good. Okay, and that brings us to Sweet Tooth. So in our previous episode, we had mentioned sort of, you know, vocal effects and things like that. You get a little bit of that, I would say, almost not dissimilar to the Hurdy Gurdy Man <laughs> sort of effect, but toned down dramatic compared to that. But a, a similar type of vocal effect. Fun fact with this one, this song was used in the soundtrack to the movie Strangeland, which was released well after this album. 
So they they obviously curated it to a sense of going back, not just picking a current Marilyn Manson song or getting them to record something, but sort of going back through and finding something that fit the scene really well, which I thought was cool. You don't usually see that in soundtracks to movies. Typically, they're just picking stuff that is sonically topical at the time. So really, really cool introduction. Uh, the the opening of this song. I don't know if there is such a thing as a goth submarine, but if there is a goth submarine, this is exactly what it would sound like <laughs> at the very beginning. Uh, and then we get into, which I'm assuming is chewing because of sweet tooth and there's some, there's some stuff going on. But the very beginning of the stuff, just some really cool audio stuff going on that I think is really, really fun. The bass builds up to some really good guitar stuff. There's interesting things done with the vocals, as you've mentioned. A very interesting song. A lot of stuff going on with it. I did really, like I said, I really loved the very, very beginning of it quite a bit. So overall good. And I did like the, as always, that idea of when you get kind of that, whether it's a single guitar or bass, and then you kind of start to layer in additional guitars and build up against it. That's I'm, that's usually a winner for me, and it was a winner for me on this song. Very nice. It, it is a song that I really like on this album, and I think it's aged well. And that brings us to Snake Eyes and Sissies. Back to the more punk rock sort of driving rock elements to this, but not in the specifically political way, just more of a general commentary on the burgeoning MTV generation of the time. So it doesn't really date itself, I would say, but definitely more in that punk rock vibe. I don't think you can ever accuse Marilyn Manson of sounding funky, but there's almost a funk-like it's as, as close as Marilyn Manson's going to get to a funk-like delivery of lyrics that occurs uh, in this song, which so points for that. It's, you know, it is the kind of the little guy and the, the big evil corporation thematic kind of running through there. It's not, not an unusual theme to hear from from those who are disgruntled. Uh, I did did almost pick up, uh, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but there was almost a Blue Oyster Cult feel. It's really for the first time in listening through this where as I, I was going through particularly kind of a later Blue Oyster Cult. Go, oh, okay, that's that's kind of in that camp a little bit, which is not, you know, it's a, it's a metal, not a punk kind of thing, but I did kind of get a little bit of a, a BOC vibe there towards the end. I thought it was a really strong song. I did like it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this song as well. But it brings us to a very interesting song on the record, My Monkey. Now, similar to Butthole Surfers in our previous review, this is sort of half a cover and half an original song, which is an interesting approach. It's different. I would say half a cover in the sense that it's different than, say, you know, rap songs, particularly of the 90s, where they were sampling big chunks of earlier songs for their choruses and things like that. This is something that is a straightforward cover in part and then switches over to an original song, which is an odd sort of approach to it so it has elements of a charles manson song in there which of course we are beach boys fans here so there there's always has to be a little little charles manson and things there uh so it's partially a charles manson song and then partially an original the mashup works pretty well though i feel like they found a melodic through line that makes it sound like one cohesive song even though if you listen to those songs separately they are very, very different. So I'm going to need you to clarify for me the line, along came a choo-choo and knocked my monkey's cuckoo, and now the monkey's dead. Is that Charles Manson or Marilyn Manson? Charles Manson. That makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> <laughs> that section, the starting with the I had a little monkey, I sent him to the country, all the way up to that is from a Charles Manson song. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um caught my attention uh that that particular thing sanity is a little box i don't know if that is that Marilyn or chuck 
That's that's Maryland. Okay, good. I mean, it was interesting. I I would not have. I didn't. I didn't do the research on it to know that this was actually a pistache of a couple things there. But uh, I thought it, it hung together really well. Except not noticeable. You mentioned that uh, kind of as well. Charles did an okay job with his monkey lyrics there. <laughs> They're okay, I guess. But you need a guy to write lyrics about monkeys. <laughs> Charles Manson's your guy. He's, he's on it big time. So <laughs> sad though. His his giraffe period never took off. Yep, it's a shame. <laughs> all right and that brings us to the final song on the album misery machine so it, it references alistair crowley in the lyrics but doesn't necessarily follow through with that it's just sort of a throwaway reference but it appears a couple times throughout the lyrics again back to the sort of driving almost punkish kind of vibe that a lot of this record has not political though so i feel like it, it it's aged better so not not on the top of the list for me on this this album it was it was solid it was okay didn't didn't have a big issue with it highway 666 it's a nice little call out obviously the little vignette at the end of the song is it's interesting, you know, where you get uh, you get the phone ringing and ringing and ringing for quite a long time before uh, it picks up and um, and gets what I will assume will be an actual recording of an actual mother requesting that their child be removed from the band's mailing list <laughs> and nothing ever be sent again. Was a, a nice little way to kind of wrap things up. I thought. Yes, no, and I agree with that. My understanding is that that was in fact an actual recording. I'm not sure. I've never done any any sort of fact checking on that but that's my understanding of it. she sounds pretty genuine <laughs> <laughs> and that that carries over in the companion piece to this album smells like children where there is clips of interactions with fans at shows from the tour supporting this that'd be pretty cool to hear well i was so i was almost going to recommend that one but i feel like you needed to hear this for to have some sort of context for that because a lot of the songs are reworkings of songs from this and then a few cover songs mixed in of all the uh prisoner exchanges so far i said this one wouldn't be climbing to the top of the pile for me it was good to actually kind of get through an entire run here a little bit and in here there's 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 some uh some parts of it that uh i enjoyed quite a bit other parts i probably live without but overall i said it was a good it was a good exposure so i appreciate uh, you rolling this one in as an option and as far as their their catalog beyond this point, whether it's the actual band or Brian Solo as Marilyn Manson, it's significantly after this and its companion piece, it is significantly more sanitized than this, which is funny because they become so much more controversial later down the line when there is almost nothing on the records that you could point at as being problematic yeah and that was the weird thing uh so the the playlist you shared with me as i went through this every song on the playlist after the title of the song had parenthetical explicit lyrics except for get your gun which did not have that parenthetical <laughs> and every song except get your gun was untouched in its full glory <laughs> f-bombs away <laughs> all the way through get your gun was a censored version that I lost track, a count of the number of beeps that were there, but there are a, a significant number of edits that occurred. A squat Cobbler-esque number of edits that occurred in <laughs> Get Your Gun, but they were all beeped out. So I thought it was kind of strange that that was the the one, and it, maybe it was sourced from like Vimeo or something like that, and they had already tidied it up or something like that. But I thought that yeah, was kind I of think, weird. I think that's what it is, because this is the... What I sent you was the the official YouTube playlist version of the album. And sometimes they will source things from a music video upload or from somewhere else. So I'm assuming that that's what happened with that. 
Yeah, lots of beeps. <laughs> <laughs> and Get Your Gun was like pushed as the main single off of this record. It was Get Your Gun and Lunchbox, and then Dope Hat was released later, and that actually ended up outperforming those and led to the companion album. Excellent. All right, well, I'm glad you didn't hate it, sir. <laughs> hey, one of these days it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't this, because I, I do have a, a personal connection to this album. I, as a young, impressionable child, got to hang out with this band. Yeah, it's like, and and maybe maybe you were an influence on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, an argument could be. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stir anything up. I'm happy to have the the original photos from the video shoot and my memories with the band. Yeah, yeah, and definitely get me uh, that uh, that cell a picture of that cell. We'll get that in the blog post. That'll be very cool. All right, sir. Well, thank you, everybody, for sharing this with us. I hope you've liked and subscribed by now. Anything you need to add, sir? Nothing else, uh, except this is probably the last appearance of Lil Kelly Tool. We'll work on a new one for the next one. <laughs> so you, you're just not, you don't think it's going to uh, stick? I'm not feeling it. No, not that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Uh, 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 uh,